0: Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium, and further afield, and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited, and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa, and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So, welcome to London, and uh, today's journey through some of the war memorials around London begins in the, in the slightly strange, perhaps, location of Platform One at Paddington Station in West London and it's the site of what I think is one of the most remarkable war memorials anywhere uh, possibly in the world I think simply because of the the quality of the sculpture of it as I say it stands on platform uh, one so as you come into Paddington over on your right hand side and it is the great Western Railway War Memorial. Uh, It was designed by uh, a man called Charles Sergeant uh, Jagger and uh, uh, another man called Thomas uh, Tate who was a a Scottish uh, architect and um, what the memorial does is it commemorates two and a half thousand uh, employees of the Great Western Railway who were killed um, during World War One, and, and it's quite remarkable actually when you look at the history of what happened with the Great Western Railway um, almost uh, a third of their workforce they employed about 80 80- Thousand people at the uh, at the time of the first war actually left to go and uh, fight, and and what they'd done is they said that uh, anyone who uh, went to uh, fight in the war was guaranteed to have their job when they came back at the end um, of the war, and and it wasn't just um, sort of giving up. Um, sort of staff and, and, and that sort of thing. The, the Great Western Railway also uh, gave her a lot of its uh, workshops and um, and things like that that were used for making uh, munitions. And, and it was obviously a big part of the transport uh, network that took place on the home front, moving uh, soldiers uh, around the country and uh, military equipment down to the sort of various army camps and the ports to be able to get them over the uh, channel, and when the war ended, the uh, company had decided uh, that they were going to uh, put out, I suppose was almost a tender for um, architects to design a war uh, memorial, and uh, what happened there? Eventually, did approach uh, Jagger, and who asked and asked him to design uh, a statue. And uh, I think it would be fair to say we'll have a look at it. it wasn't really an entirely smooth uh, process. The the management of the Great Western Railway had a very sort of firm and fixed ideas as to what they wanted to uh, achieve, and um, they sort of uh, was. There's a lot of toing and froing and pushing for uh, designs. It got to say that Jagger actually threatened uh, to. Uh, resign um, but thankfully they managed to sort of uh, placate the situation and the Great Western Memorial was uh, finally produced and the memorial itself is the bronze statue of a soldier and he's dressed in very sort of heavy uh, kind of winter clothing and and he's holding in his hands a a letter um, one presumes a letter from home which he is uh, reading and um it's uh, it stands on a a plinth that's made of uh, granite it's a polished granite with a sort of white kind of stone uh, surround of it and what the um great western railway did is they recorded uh, the names of uh, all of their dead on, on a roll of honor and that is uh, actually buried um, underneath the uh, plinth and um one of the uh, interesting things uh, about the memorial is that um, it was actually sort of reused. It was so sort of uh, atmospheric and, and kind of iconic that um, in um, 1981, there was a sort of replica of it was uh, made to um, use the sort of the model for the um, memorial to commemorate the British Army uh, Postal Service. So um, it sort of reached, extends kind of beyond... Um, Paddington station and beyond the great western railway and at the time of the Great War the the Great Western Railway was one of the the, the biggest railway companies um, in the United Kingdom. It was based at Paddington Station and uh, rather similar to it as it does now. It covered uh, stations across the south and west of England and sort of across to South Wales um, um, and it did actually go up as far as the the Midlands and it doesn't anymore uh, now but um, what happened when the war broke out like uh, all railways um, it the great western was taken under uh, government control when the war broke out and um, really uh, in the early stages the the great western railways were responsible for moving uh, large numbers of sort of men and supplies to um, Ports to go uh, across the channel over to um, France and, and up to uh, Belgium, and then uh, they were also responsible for sort of uh, supplying the dockyards down at Plymouth, It was a major source of kind of uh, infrastructure and transport uh, during the uh, Great uh, War. And, and like uh, uh, many organisations, when the war broke out, the Great Western Railway was very sort of keen that its uh, employees should do their bit and, uh, and go and join the armed um, forces. And, and I think there was uh, probably, I think there was a real sense of pride. Actually, amongst the uh, railway companies, uh, about the number of employees that joined up. And I think it was a a bit of sort of like um, healthy competition between the railway companies as to who could uh, have the most number of employees uh, leave to fight. And what, uh, as I said, what Great Western did is they were very generous in their offer and they promised, uh, they guaranteed that they would keep uh, jobs for everyone who went to to fight. And when they came back and when the war was over, they could go back into their old um, positions and at the very beginning of the war, in, in August 1914, over I think it was over 4,000 Great Western Railway employees, mainly reservists uh, at that time, had uh, had been called up. And um, by the end of October, this had actually gone up to about 8,500. And, a half, um, thousand. and um, it wasn't until December of 1914 the Great uh, Western per- published its first uh, set of uh, casualty figures of men who were employees of the uh, company of uh, 58 of them had been reported uh, killed and and 200 of them uh, wounded or taken prisoner. Of course, this was the great retreat uh, from Mons at uh, this time. And um, by uh, the middle of 1916, so just before the Battle of uh, the Somme, uh, the Great Western had supplied over 23,000 men into the uh, forces. And, and the problem was, was that um, there were actually so many men uh, volunteering to go and fight that uh, the Great Western actually had to put some controls in place so that it was still actually able to keep the railways running because I think there were so many people who had gone. They, uh, they needed people to uh, obviously run and, and manage the uh, railways and um, what uh, they decided to do was that all people who wanted to volunteer had to be uh, approved by uh, Great Western uh, Management and there were certain jobs that were classed as sort of reserved and um, they were the, kind of the essential for the running of the railway and um, these men uh, unfortunately weren't uh, allowed, or unfortunately for them rather, weren't allowed to join um, up and um in total i think it was about 24 25000 uh, men uh, joined up and uh, by the end of the war uh, about 1900 of them had uh, been uh, killed and and once this sort of the final figure was tallied up for, for the purposes really of the war memorial the final figure came to 2524 uh, so it's quite remarkable actually when you think about the this sheer um Volume of, of casualties from one um, organisation. And when the war was over, what they decided to do was that they wanted to have a memorial uh, created. And of course, uh, you know, at the end of the war, the, there were war memorials of some kind of spring up um, all over um, Britain. And, and many companies, uh, Great Western weren't alone in this, decided that they wanted to um, put uh, memorials up to kind of honour their um, employees. And as we've said, the, the person who was chosen to design the memorial was Charles Sergeant um, Jagger. Now, he was a sculptor from before the war. He'd actually served during uh, the First World War. He was a man, a decorated soldier. He was awarded a military uh, cross. He was wounded uh, several um, times. And it really, I think it was uh, Jagger's designs of uh, war memorials that uh, really, sort of, uh, kind of, made his his mark in the world of art and um, and sculpture, and he was became sort of very famous for the uh, the lifelike figures of soldiers that he created for some of the um, memorial. And um, what um, uh, happened was that he he first of all created a memorial up in um, Hoylake, in uh, which I think is near Liverpool. I'm sure someone correct me uh, if I'm uh, wrong. And uh, the the sort of the figures that he created were so uh, sort of uh, critically acclaimed and kind of highly uh, prized that he got uh, lots and lots of commissions came through to design um, other memorials and um, and that sort of thing and um, what um, happened was that when he was commi- uh, when he was approached rather by the Great Western Railway he was working on uh, the design for the Portsmouth Memorial uh, and the um, Royal Artillery Memorial which is uh, I think probably his most sort of uh, famous um, work and, and all of uh, sort of jaggers creations uh, feature this uh, the famous the, the Tommy uh, the, the soldier in in action and um, he he um, he was sort of quite interesting because what he did is he sort of moved away from uh, what one would associate with the kind of the classic kind of allegorical sort of spiritual figures that one uh, tended to see on uh, war memorials and, and um, created uh, this um, uh, this much more realistic and a very human form in in sculpture and when you look at some of Jagger's memorials it's, it's quite remarkable what he uh, achieves and the sort of the lifelike uh, nature of the uh, of the The sculpture uh, that he's done, and when he was creating the memorial at uh, Paddington, he say he worked with a man called Thomas uh, Smith Tate, and he was a Scottish uh, architect, and um, he um, sort of uh, I think he probably sort of say developed a sort of reputation as a as a designer of um, war memorials after the war, and he worked uh, sort of very closely with Jagger. They were quite a bit of a dynamic sort of duo, and uh, they worked uh, very very well together and very well um, with each other. The great... Western Railway set up a war memorial committee. And one of the things that they were sort of trying to do was to look at the various sort of options for the way that they were going to commemorate uh, their war dead. And they, they came up with various sort of ideas. this sort of thought they might have this big kind of triumphal sort of arch on the approach to Paddington uh, Station, a bit like uh, was planned at uh, Waterloo. And there was the th- talk about a sort of mural um, and that sort of thing. But in the end, they decided to um, go for a, a kind of classical uh, statue and they allocated the the sum of uh, about £5,500, which, of course, at that time was an enormous uh, sum of uh, money. And they chose Jagger to... Uh, designed the memorial had been recommended uh, to the government by Sir Reginald uh, blomfeld and um, then various people would have recommended him to the, the chairman of the uh, of the committee but uh, the problem was was as is some, often happens I think when you try and manage anything by committee there was a, it was it was not always an easy um, task because the um, committee was sort of very keen to keep an eye on what uh, jagger was uh, doing and I think this sort of interfered with the kind of artistic uh, process probably and uh, there was a very Uh, sort of got a bit uh, fractious and it got to the stage that uh, Jagger actually wrote a letter of um, resignation to the members of the committee um, when they kept trying to push for a a different type of memorial and um, what uh, happened, there was the the chief engineer of the the Great Western Railway intervened and uh, when he understood the sort of design that uh, Jagger was proposing, it eventually got put through the uh, committee and and signed off, but the, the the Great Western Railway had actually been planning its uh, sort of commemorations for its war dead since about mm-hmm. uh, I think it was about December of uh, nineteen uh, fifteen, and what they started to do was um, sort of publish uh, casualty statistics, and they, these were a sort of a, a paper uh, roll of honour that was held in a sort of um, I think it was kind of like a sort of wooden display case, which stood originally on platform one where we are at the uh, moment. And these were these sort of rolls of honour were copied and they were distributed to various uh, stations that were kind of around the, the, the Great Western um, Network. The figure that was finally chosen says this, this over life-size statue uh, of a soldier and it was a cast at the, the Thames Uh, Ditton Foundry down in uh, Surrey. The soldier is uh, wearing sort of like winter clothing. He's got a great coat on and there's sort of sheepskin, uh, a kind of jerkin, and a a scarf. And he's got his uh, his helmet sort of pushed back and a sort of of, jaunty uh, angle on the kind of the back of his uh, head. And uh, he's uh, reading, say, a letter from uh, home. And it stands on this sort of decorative uh, stone. Uh, plinth, which is uh, made of some sort of dark uh, granite, and it contrasts really nicely with this Portland stone. This kind of white, sort of Portland stone uh, around the uh, the sort of base of the uh, memorial, and um, it contained inside the memorial. You can't actually see it, but it is a is a casket that was made at the, uh, Swindon's. Uh, sorry Great Western Railways uh, works down in uh, Swindon and it bears the names of all of the uh, dead and I say it's uh, sort of buried um, inside it and on either side of this sort of screen at the back you have the badges of uh, both the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force and it's it's an incredibly sort of um, imposing uh, figure and I think what really gets to me when I look at it is, is just the sort of expression on the statue's and face It's so lifelike and so uh, human in its sort of uh, application. It's a really wonderful piece of sculpture. And, and, and on the memorial itself, there's an inscription uh, below the soldier's feet, which says, in honour of those who served in the Great War, 1914-1918, 25,479 men of the Great Western Railway joined His Majesty's forces, 2,524 gave their lives. The memorial itself was unveiled on the 11th of November 1922 and it's quite remarkable that over 6,000 people came to the station to to watch uh, the ceremony and it was mainly people who had been invited but there was also relatives of uh, Great Western employees who died and and other employees um, as well and uh, they were brought in on on a large sort of of, of these special trains that have been put on from all over the Great Western um, uh, network. And, and what they did is that they built uh, this sort of uh, temporary kind of stand, temporary seating over uh, the tracks of Platform 2 and, and Platform 3, which still exist uh, today. And um, they um, sort of uh, built this kind of like, yeah, this kind of grandstand, I suppose, for, for all these uh, people. And there was a sort of, it was a very um, sort of deeply religious kind of ceremony. Lots of uh, hymns were sung and it was uh, done by um, uh, performers the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and sort of that sort of thing. And then uh, apparently there was, at 11 o'clock, there was a, a two minutes of silence, which was, uh, by all accounts, absolutely sort of impeccably um, observed. And then uh, there were sort of various uh, speeches um, made. And, and Winston uh, Churchill was actually there in, in attendance, and he uh, sort of gave this kind of view that uh, he rather hoped that the, the statue should be viewed in... Um, um, sort of, um, you know, a, a testament to the families of the uh, the soldiers um, who had died. And it was this idea, really, that um, by reading uh, a letter, it would kind of bring sort of, uh, I suppose, solace to people who'd written to their uh, loved ones who were out during um, the fighting. And then the the ceremony apparently ended with a sort of a, a very... Hearty uh, rendition of uh, "God Save the King" and uh, the crowd. Julie uh, then departed um, off, and um, it, it, the the statues as they have stood there ever since. It, it uh, had a, a large amount of uh, restoration was done, and I think about the early 2000s because it was uh, suffering from corrosion from the fumes that were being caused by diesel uh, trains coming in and out of the um, of, of the station. But um, it is um, it, it, it it is a remarkable war memorial, and so if you do go to Paddington you can, you can get onto uh, Platform 1 without having to get a ticket uh, through a barrier. To, it's open. And uh, do go and have a look and uh, just sort of marvel say, at the, the sculptor's work and, and this, this magnificent sort of sentinel that stands guard over this station. And uh, say a real, real um, fantastic example of how powerful a war memorial can be. So I've jumped back on the tube now and come back over to uh, by Kensington Palace and we're actually in Kensington Palace Gardens at the moment and um, it's uh, it's a lovely place to uh, walk uh, around obviously in the grounds of the palace itself with uh, the lakes and uh, there's lots and lots of memorials scattered around the park but um, there are two that particularly caught my attention and these are two small shelters that are situated uh, about uh, 100 metres apart they're down by Kensington palace gardens not far from the the princess diana's uh, garden and um the reason that i was interested in them is because they are first world War-related, and they owe their existence to a remarkable woman and a remarkable uh, <laughs> fundraising campaign that was called the Silver okay. Thimble Fund. Now, this um, really came as a ra- uh, around as a, as a result of uh, uh, one uh, woman's uh, sort of uh, love of uh, sewing, and what uh, this uh, love of sewing did is it produced a, a fundraising campaign that uh, was to reach sort of international uh, standards. And the lady herself was was the rather splendidly named. Miss Hope Elizabeth Hope Clark, and uh, she was a a resident of uh, Wimbledon down in southwest uh, London and what uh, she uh, realized at the beginning of the war was that she had a problem um, that was uh, common to uh, all uh, all the people who were uh, engaged in the pastime of embroidery and what happened was that uh, she had uh, broken the thimble that uh, she used and it was around about this time that uh, many Many women of uh, Edwardian England were um, engaged in sort of sewing warm uh, clothing and warm garments to send out to troops on the uh, front uh, line. And um, what um, Hope Clark uh, realised was that there there were probably lots of uh, other fellow sewers around the country who would uh, have the same problem that she had of having broken uh, a thimble. And what she uh, started to do, she published a letter uh, in the Times and she began to collect damaged. Uh, thimbles and other sort of little trinkets and things like that but mainly made of precious uh, metals and really what she thought uh, or kind of the thinking behind this was that the items um, were sold and they could be melted uh, down and what she could then do was use the profits to go towards um, the purchase of uh, medical equipment which could be used to kind of help uh, soldiers on the front line and that sort of thing and uh, she thought uh, ideally it would be possible maybe to buy uh, one uh, ambulance for example that could maybe be used out on the front uh, line. So as I said in July 1915, what she did is she she put a letter in the Times where she appealed for uh, thimbles and um, trinkets, and what became known as the Silver Thimble Fund uh, was born. And this was an operation that she ran entirely from her home in in uh, Wimbledon, and she was supported by um, a sort of army of uh, of ordinary women and fellow um, sewers and seamstresses who were kind of uh, bought into this idea. And um. She was um, uh, also very fortunate that it kind of gained uh, sort of support amongst the higher, sort of, I suppose we'd say, echelons of uh, society. And she got a, a, a lady by the name of uh, Lady Maud uh, Wilbraham, who's a very wealthy lady and uh, quite a sort of philanthropist in Edwardian um, London, became a, a, a sort of endorser of the scheme. And, and what very quickly happened was enough items had been purchased uh, that an ambulance was uh, bought and then uh, they got a uh, sort of royal uh, patronage when Queen Alexandra of course the mother of King George V uh, was so impressed that she agreed to become the uh, the patron of the, uh, the organisation and, and actually what happened between 19 19- and 1919 the pit was so successful that there were 30 uh, appeals were launched and uh, they managed to gather over 60,000 broken thimbles and um, these were converted into 15 ambulances, five motor hospital launches, two dental surgery cars and a and what uh, happened was actually it was so successful that the charity ended up going uh, global. So uh, as well as sort of sending um, uh, sort of hospital launches as far across as the, the battlefields in a Mesopotamia, um, what they uh, did is they established these collecting centres for these broken thimbles and trinkets, and these were all over the world. They uh, ranged from Canada right across to um, uh, New Zealand, and by the time the war ended in 1918. What had happened was that they'd, they'd actually received enough donations of sort of bracelets and brooches and thimbles um, and that sort of thing um, that um, they were actually able to buy uh, an entire radiological um, outfit which is quite remarkable they held a, this sort of one week um, Thimble Amnesty I think it was called uh, at the Central Hall in Westminster and uh, this was a sort of uh, a success beyond uh, I think anyone's um, expectations but what uh, happened was that it, the, this didn't stop after the war had ended and the donations kept coming in and um, they were able to make sort of large uh, donations to uh, the Star and Garter home which was down in, uh, in Richmond in Richmond and that they were able to sort of continue helping um, towards the recovery and sort of recuperation of uh, returning uh, servicemen I for an awful long time after the war had uh, finished but um, the reason we're in Kensington Palace Gardens is because of the two shelters that stand there and uh, what happened was that the money that was left over from the silver thimble Fund was used to uh, erect two shelters outside uh, Kensington Palace and what they did it was a nice little sort of place for people to uh, stop and seek shelter whilst they were walking around the park and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, there are two shelters, one to the north uh, commemorates the Navy and the one to the south commemorates the uh, army and there are commemorative uh, panels which are um fixed on them and one has the inscription in memory of our sailors who upheld Britain's shore shield 1914-1918 and the other one uh, to the south says in memory of our soldiers who fought in the great war and uh, the naval one is interesting because it's a reference to uh, George V's uh, address to um, Admiral Jellicoe, which took place at the the start of the First World War, um, and where he described um, the Navy as Britain's sure shield, and what he said was that uh, the officers and men of the Navy would once again prove the sure shield of Britain and of her empire in the hour of of trial, Um I say uh, they're very worth uh, seeing. Sadly, they uh, they have been uh, vandalised quite a lot over the last few years. People graffitiing and things like that, and uh, the uh, the benches uh, were removed. But they're actually listed memorials now and were refurbished in uh, 2019. And as I say, it's, if you're wandering around the park, um, do uh, do uh, seek them out and have a little look and just uh, marvel at the the kind of I think the ingenuity really of this remarkable lady and her passion for sewing that led to the creation of these two war memorials. So we've moved away now from the peace and quiet of Kensington Gardens and have come into the bustling heart of the City of London. And we're at the Church of St Edmund the King and Martyr, which is located on uh, Lombard Street, uh, just to say right in the heart of the City of uh, London. Although uh, the building itself is still a uh, a consecrated uh, church, it's now used as uh, the the London uh, Centre for Spirituality. And uh, whilst I'm uh, recalling this, there is a, uh, a Bible group uh, actually uh, in uh, session. I'm known to be is, uh, relatively quiet uh, so as not to uh, disturb them. Uh, and there's actually been a church on this site since about the 13th uh, century. And it was sort of had uh, various kind of uh, incarnations. It was uh, rebuilt throughout the ages. And the medieval uh, church, I think, that stood on this uh, site was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, and um, fortunately for the church, I suppose it was uh, rebuilt um, in I think it was about 1670, according to a design by the great Sir Christopher Wren. It's, it's a it's a very impressive uh, building from uh, outside. It's very narrow with a sort of grey frontage with this sort of white uh, tower on it, and uh, the as a sort of homage, I suppose you'd say, to the the Great uh, Fire of London, there are on the corner Corner of uh, each uh, of uh, point of the tower, these flaming urns, which are sort of, I think, supposed to represent the uh, the the, uh, the great uh, fire of uh, London. And it's a um, it's an interesting church. It's got a, an interesting uh, history uh, to it, and there's a, sort of a, two connections really with the uh, First World uh, War. And um, after the uh, war, one of the uh, men who was uh, the sort of in, the, the priest in charge of the parish was one of my great. Heroes of the First World War, a man by the name of Jeffrey Studdett Kennedy. Of course, he was known as Woodbine uh, Willie. And if you uh, are interested to find out more about this remarkable man, then please uh, go back through the uh, the historical podcast uh, archives, and you'll find that I did a podcast on uh, Woodbine Willie. I think uh, a couple of seasons ago. uh, Now, but um, he was uh, Woodbine Willie uh, was working here, as I say, after the uh, war, and he uh, was working for uh, what was called the industrial christian uh, fellowship and this was uh, an organization that he went on sort of speaking tours uh, around the uh, united uh, kingdom and it was uh, during uh, one of these tours that he was taken ill and he died uh, when he was up in liverpool in uh, 1929 but it's not really for wood by willie that we've come to the church today because the the church itself contains a remarkable memorial to uh, an incident that happened on the 7th of July 1917 and it was on that day that the second daylight air raid of the First World War was undertaken by a, a squadron of Goethe bombers and uh, they came over and um, uh, they were part of what was called the uh, England Squadron of the German Air Force and what this uh, was was a um, a, a part of the Imperial German Army uh, Air Service and it was formed in uh, late uh, 1916 and their their sole sort of uh, task was to uh, uh, bomb the United Kingdom kind of strategic bombing of the United Kingdom but more specifically uh, London. And on the seventh of July, uh, twenty-two Gotha bombers took off uh, to set off on, I say, on this daylight raid on raid on uh, London rather, and um, they uh, did uh, make it across channel. by one which had to um, sort of turn back when it got to the uh, English coast, it wasn't able to get as far as London, but it did uh, bomb um, Margate. And what happened was the the Gotha uh, bombers approached uh, London in sort of formation from the north, and what they've done is they would actually used. F- Epping Forest as a landmark and uh, what they uh, took to doing sort of a quite interesting development in kind of aerial tactics was they kept breaking up into sort of smaller uh, groups and they did this to try to avoid the sort of the quite heavy I think anti-aircraft fire that uh, was coming up before they would uh, reform uh, again. And what they did is uh, a few uh, bombs were dropped on um, the the northern uh, suburbs, but the main focus was uh, very much the city of London, where we're standing um, at the moment. And one uh, bomb actually landed on the the, the central telegraph office up near St Paul's uh, Cathedral, and there were others landed near, um, I think it was uh, London Bridge uh, Station. And once they'd um, done their bombing raid, they they flew off towards the coast and they uh, went uh, over the coast of. Essex, and it was during uh, this uh, sort of retreat back to uh, uh, over the sea that one of the uh, the Girthers was shot uh, down by uh, I think it was an uh, an Armstrong Whitworth um, plane. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but I'm pretty sure I remember that's um, what it was. But um, what uh, happened was that during this uh, bombing raid, is that a bomb actually fell. On the Church of St Edmunds, and what uh, happened is it, it uh, destroyed sort of the main uh, part of the roof, and it required uh, very, very, very extensive uh, sort of repair work, very expensive repair work, and uh, the church was closed for uh, over two years. But um, whilst this, sort of say there were, you know, lots of buildings were damaged in. Air raids. what's particularly interesting about the uh, the the church of uh, st edmund the king is that in the middle of the altar is a large glass case and preserved inside this case is a, a large uh, fragment of the German bomb that actually hit the uh, church itself. And it's uh, really interesting to see it's this mass of kind of twisted uh, metal, and um, it's just not the sort of thing that one would normally expect to see in the altar of a uh, church. And I think this is sort of a um, sort of strange paradox, really, isn't there, of, uh, of having this weapon and this item that caused so much destruction during a war to uh, be part of the altar of a, of a, of a Christian. Uh, church. there's a sort of like this is a kind of symmetry in the in the sort of thinking uh, about it. But it's it's really interesting to sort of see this. And um, I say the, the 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 church itself is worth it. It's very interesting to come look at. Say so it's a typical uh, example of, of beautiful Christopher Wren um, architecture. But it's uh, one of those sort of like little hidden bits of World War One history that one finds around London. It's just a bit off the beaten track. It's not normally the sort of place that someone would come um, and visit. But I uh, say so if you do happen to find yourself in this part of the city of london um do uh, pop in they're uh, very friendly and here very welcoming and uh, yes yeah, so you can see a little bit of german aviation history dating back to the first world war So the next stage of our journey through these extraordinary war memorials takes us to just around the corner from St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's a remarkable memorial that sits in a place called Postman's uh, Park. And, and this is one of these sort of quirky little uh, green spaces that one finds scattered around um, London's. And in the uh, in the park itself is this remarkable uh, structure on the walls of which are a series of uh, ceramic. Tiles and um, what these uh, tiles do is they commemorate uh, acts from uh, long ago of of extraordinary, I suppose it would be sort of self uh, sacrifice by ordinary men, women, and uh, children. And the memorial itself is called the Memorial to Heroic Self Sacrifice, and uh, it, um, it owes its creation to a man by the name of George Frederick. Uh, Watts and uh, there's a statue to him actually in the middle of the uh, memorial, it's a small sort of statuette, he's a, he's a bearded uh, figure wearing a long uh, robe But it was Watts who uh, originally came up with this uh, idea of um, creating a memorial and it's really uh, sort of down to his kind of uh, persistence and desire to see this memorial being raised that uh, it uh, actually came to pass because it was no easy feat as we'll see he uh, met with a sort of really indifferent from a a sort of officialdom when he was trying to create uh, this uh, memorial but um what it does is say it commemorates um, ordinary men women and children who uh, who performed heroic deeds and, and generally lost their lives in the act of doing them. And as we'll see when we look through some of the uh, memorial tablets there are uh, connections to uh, the First World War. There are a number of uh, police officers who are recorded on the memorial and we'll look at uh, those as we come uh, to them. And uh, the idea really for this memorial first came in the 1860s. Uh, George uh, Watts was a man who was sort of very interested in, in this, uh, this idea of sort of um, a spiritual and uh, and the afterlife uh, as as were many uh, people during this sort of Victorian um, age and he was uh, sort of obsessed with this idea of this this concept of what we would call uh, memento mori which is obviously remember uh, that you must die and he was a sort of great pains to point out this wasn't actually a a morbid thing really what it was was a a reminder that one must live each day to the fullest because you never know sort of what's going to um, happen and um, what uh, allegedly happened was that whilst he was away on holiday in the the mid 1860s I think it was about 1866 he was reading uh, the novel Felix Holt, which of course was written by George um, Eliot, and and there was a, um, a a passage in it which kind of inspired him. And the passage reads as follows: For what we call illusions are often, in truth, a wider vision of past and present realities, a willing movement of a man's soul with the larger sweep of the world's forces, a movement towards a more assured end than the chances of single life. We see human heroism broken into units and say, this unit did little might as well not have been. But in this way, we might break up a great army into units. In this way, we might break the sunlight into fragments and think that this and the other might be cheaply parted with. Let us rather raise a monument to the soldiers whose brave hearts only kept the ranks unbroken and met death, a monument to the faithful who were not famous, who are precious as the continuity of the sunbeams is precious though some of them fall unseen and on barrenness uh, and what this passage did, it sort of's um, got uh, what's sort of thinking about uh, this idea as to whether it was possible to create a, a monument that could use uh, multiple sort of commemorations to to numerous people to kind of deliver one single um, message and what, what he did he, he uh, approached a, a large number of uh, of people to see if he could raise funds uh, for this memorial one of them was uh, his patron a man by the name of charles uh Rickards. and what he did is he wrote a letter to him and basically said this is what i'd uh, like to do and um records read the letter that he wrote him and and sort of met with this kind of apathy and sort of general um indifference and uh, and this was something that really um what was to sort of encounter really over the next kind of two to three um decades and uh, what uh, happened was in 1887 when Queen Victoria was uh, celebrating her Golden Jubilee Watts uh, decided that this was a pretty good time for him to make another sort of bid to um, bring his idea to fruition and what he did is he actually wrote a letter to the Times that was published on the 7th of September 1887 and uh, he explained um, that uh, he uh, what he wanted to do and he explained that he wanted to create this uh, memorial and the example he used was um, the case of, of a young lady called Alice Ayers. Now she was uh, a servant uh, who um, whose story I suppose really kind of grabbed uh, public imagination in 1885 uh, because what she'd done is there, there'd been a fire at a house in uh, Union Street and uh, what she'd uh, done is she'd uh, rescued her three nieces from the fire and in so doing she'd actually lost her own uh, life and um, it was sort of felt that this was the kind of example of the sort of heroism that Watts uh, wanted to fulfil and put into the memorial and um, his idea sort of going a bit of fruition, and he was given some uh, airtime, I suppose you would say, by various newspapers. One of which was the Pal Mal Gazette, and they sent a, uh, a reporter to kind of uh, interview him and um, and explain um, what he wanted to do. And it sort of gained quite a lot of sort of uh, publicity. But um, in fact, for what it was to take uh, almost another ten years before the uh, memorial really kind kind of came to uh, fruition. And uh, what what had happened was that Watts had built up a very good relationship with the vicar of what was then uh, St. Boltoff's church and uh, the vicar's name was Henry uh, Gamble and quite interesting is actually connection with Gamble and um, the uh, the sort of the military because his grandfather was a man by the name of John Proctor Gamble who was actually the first chaplain general of the army chaplains course there's sort of uh, you know this, this kind of connection with um, military history and what happened was that um, there was uh, some extensions and building works was done at the church. And um, Watts was offered uh, a section uh, of this sort of new extension of land with was to what was become known as Postman's uh, Park. And um, he decided that he was going to use uh, this area of the, uh, the land to create uh, his uh, mo- memorial. He was interviewed by various uh, newspapers where he explained kind of what he was trying to Um, do and um, what he uh, basically said was that um, there were kind of heroic deeds that were sort of coming to the public eye and implying the sort of this sacrifice that people give down their lives to save um, others and he said it's a sort of great reflection on English character and I think it's really an opportunity to kind of establish a permanent uh, memorial Um, to them and what he said was that it was very important that um, it didn't include uh, those who died on on the battlefield or on ships because they uh, already had a sort of honor to them and he wanted honor to be done to in his words those who were equally brave who neither expect uh, recognition nor uh, get it and um, he managed to successfully start building the memorial and it was completed in early uh, 1900 and by the first of July 1900 there were four uh, of these ceramic plaques that had been uh, attached onto the wall and I think what's quite surprising actually when you look at it the fact that um, um, Watts had uh, used the case of Alice Ayres to kind of spearhead um, his campaign it's quite unusual that she actually wasn't one of the first plaques to be um, included um, on there and in fact the first four plaques uh, that were a uh, were put up were related to uh, a man called uh, thomas griffin um two men called walter pert and harry dean a lady called mary rogers and a police constable by the name of george stephen uh, funnel and they'd each um, had sort of performed uh, kind of heroic um acts and i think what's quite sad is that when the memorial was unveiled in uh 90 19- on the 30th of july 1900 uh, watts was actually very ill and he wasn't able um to uh, attend and the um, memorial was opened by the Lord Mayor of London and it was uh, uh, assisted by the uh, the Bishop uh, of London as well and uh, what happened was that there were in a further nine uh, tablets were put onto the wall in 1902 and um, he, uh, Watts actually funded the memorials himself and it was him who was responsible for choosing who went um, onto it but in 1903 a committee was actually formed by the uh, uh, parish council of St Botolph's Church and really what they uh, decided to do was that they were going to decide who was going to be included um, on the uh, memorials and he um, Watts uh, sadly um, uh, died in 1904 but what he really did was um, he kind of set the uh, criteria for it and really the inclusion was that a candidate um, had to be from London and that the act of uh, self sacrifice must have taken place during the reign of uh, Queen uh, Victoria and um, what uh, happened o- over the years more and more plaques were uh, added um, uh, 11 of them were, were manufactured by uh, the famous ceramic uh, maker man, by the name of William uh, de Morgan and um, then uh, another row of 24 plaques were added in 1908 and then uh, there was one tablet that was added in 1919 followed by three more in, in the 1930s and in fact then it was over 70 years until a um, um, uh, any more plaques were added and the last one was in 2009 when uh, a tile was added to commemorate uh, a man by the name of Lee uh, Pitt and uh, if you go to the memorial today there are 54 memorial plaques on there which are remembered uh, 62 acts of heroic uh, self-sacrifice but of course uh, the question really is is, is what? Um, how does this relate to the First World War well there are a number of uh, police officers who are recorded on this memorial who lost their lives during the uh first world war and the first one we come to is a man by the name of alfred uh, smith now he was killed on the 13th of june 1917 and he um was killed uh, during uh, uh rescuing a group of uh, women who'd been caught out in uh, the middle of an air raid uh, on um london and um what uh, what happened was that um about mid-morning on the 13th of June, uh, PC Smith was was actually on duty close to a, a factory in uh, a Central Street, which is in Hoxton, a very hip and uh, trendy part of uh, East. Um, London and what happened was that 14 Goethe bombers came over and they started uh, dropping their bombs onto the streets uh, below Uh, and what it did is had this sort of strange effect that there was a mixture of sort of panic and I suppose we'd almost say kind of curiosity of the uh, bystanders and uh, what um, happened was that uh, a group of uh, women came out of a uh, a factory to sort of see uh, what uh, what was going on, and um, PC Smith recognising the the danger ran over to them and, and sort of uh, forced them back into uh, the building to tell them that they really shouldn't be standing outside and shouldn't be watching uh, what was going on. But um, what happened was that a, a bomb dropped uh, very very close to him and um, he was actually killed uh, by uh, shock there was no sort of visible injuries on him but he died from uh, his uh, sort of this the concussion and the the shock of the bomb uh, going off uh, next to him and um, he uh, sort of duly uh, sacrificed his own life so that these uh, young ladies uh, lives could be saved and I think absolutely a credible inclusion on uh, the memorial itself. Another plaque on the memorial which has a First World War connection relates to a man called PC Edward. Green off. And his plaque says, Metropolitan Police, many lives were saved by his devotion to duty at the terrible explosion at Silvertown, 19th of January, 1917. And uh, what uh, happened, the Silvertown explosion was, uh, was a terrible explosion that happened at a munitions uh, factory in um, London. And what uh, happened was he was on patrol on the night of the 19th of uh, January when he noticed that there was uh, a fire at uh, what was called the Bruner Mon. Uh, chemical factory, and this was off the North uh, Woolwich Road. And the factory had actually been closed in 2012, but in 1915 uh, it had been reopened uh, solely to uh, purify TNT, the uh, the explosive. This was all being used for the uh, the war um, effort. And um, what happened was that a um, a fire broke out and uh, began to spread, sort of very, uh, very, very quickly indeed. And uh, there was a PC um, off uh, headed towards it and helped sort of evacuate as many people as he possibly could and then um, what happened was actually reported in the newspaper and uh, it says as follows Suddenly the explosion came, a hiss and a low rumble and a mighty roar split the heavens and set the earth rocking A blazing volcano opened up and the sky assumed a fiery red glow for miles around and a tornado of flames swept through the air in all directions to a great height bearing with it as if feathers huge girders and large fragments of iron and steel weighing anything five six seven or ten tons and even a boiler that weighed several tons in weight a miscellaneous hail descended on a far-flung area already devastated by the concussion Roofs were stripped off like cardboard, cottages collapsed like packs of cards, walls gave way or bulged, ceilings fell, Window shattered and house fronts were torn out. Over a radius of half to three quarters of a mile the full force of the explosion was experienced. Nothing could resist it. In a moment buildings were leveled and a number of residents crushed and buried beneath the wreckage. It was in the immediate aftermath of the uh, explosion that uh, P. C. Greenoff was hit on the head by a piece of flying uh, debris, and he uh, sort of strength of his uh, character, he managed to survive for almost a week uh, before he died. And uh, as I said, his uh, his um, memory of his sacrifice is commemorated on this memorial. It's just, it's just a remarkable little place of uh, solitude and and peace in the hustle and bustle of the city. And uh, I say, if you're uh, if you're near St. Paul's, do Uh, make uh, a little trip just to have a look and uh, think of some of the sacrifices of the men and women who are recorded on this fantastic memorial so we've come away from central London and moved up into the leafy suburbs of Hampstead up in north west London and it's a, a lovely part of this city, this is a very, uh, very wealthy part, you need a lot of money to live here right? it's uh, sort of these uh, these nice sort of wide uh, tree lined uh, streets and uh, it's a very pleasant part of uh, London, I just uh, stopped and uh, had a cup of uh, coffee which has uh, nearly sent me bankrupt I'm to have to remortgage my house and I think the only way really you can afford to drink coffee around here is if you could afford to buy one of the houses but that's uh, besides the point. Uh, what, what are we doing up in Hampstead itself? Well there's a, a very unusual war memorial which is located on the sides of a block of flats and uh, obviously when you, times when you see uh, war memorials there to um, commemorate uh, regiments or actions or, or the men from a particular uh, town or village or something like that but this memorial is slightly different it's one of the say well it's sort of slightly quirky uh, memorials that one finds uh, sometimes as, uh, as one goes around looking at the first world war But it's, it's another it's interesting more as well because it's um, actually uh, it's sort of quite referential to uh, social history as well as military history. The flats that stand on uh, Newcourt flats uh, date back to Victorian times. And so there's a real sort of interesting social connection with them because they are one of the oldest examples of uh, what were called artisans' uh, dwellings. They were built by a a local philanthropist in in the 1850s. And they are one of the oldest examples of flats that were built for what were called the deserving Poor, and uh, it's a sort of slightly unusual kind of thing to say this about what deserving poor. And it came from the, the founding of the Poor Law, um, which uh, uh, was uh, enacted in, I think, the 1850s, uh, early 1850s. And what uh, deserving poor were those who were uh, destitute, um, but through no sort of fault. Of their own, and of course, then by contrast, you had the um, uh, undeserving poor, and these were, I think, people who society viewed as sort of uh, lazy and didn't wish to work and uh, just sort of uh, wanted uh, support uh, from the state. Of course, one could argue that things uh, maybe haven't changed that much uh, nowadays um, anyway, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting sort of block of uh, flats. And on the side of the uh, flats is a uh, black metal plaque surrounded by sort of white, uh, I think it's probably concrete, something like that. And what it says on it is, in honour of the men who went from these buildings to serve their king and country in the Great War, 1914-1918, of whom ten died for the good cause. And it's very uh, unusual. I have never seen a memorial uh, like this before because obviously what it does is it's talking about um, all the men who went to war. Not just those who um, uh, died. And uh, one can see as you look through the, the names on the memorial, I think there are 50 names in sort of two uh, columns, and those uh, who died are, are marked with a little cross uh, next to uh, their, um, their names. And um, I think what um, sort of from, uh, from the research I've done on this, the, the, the philanthropist who financed the building of it was a man by the name of uh, Hugh. Uh, Jackson. Now he was a a London uh, solicitor and his son was a man by the name of uh, Thomas Jackson, who went on to become Sir Thomas Jackson, um, was a very very uh, distinguished um, uh, architect. And uh, say th- we think that um, I-, I don't know whether he he was too young to have sort of been the architect for these uh, flats. But uh, the Jackson family were a very very uh, wealthy family, and sort of they managed uh, pretty much the whole of uh, of Hampstead uh, at one stage um, or uh, another. And um, they say they're just very sort of uh, very wealthy. Um, um, but it's it's, a, it's very very interesting to see this uh, this memorial and um, and uh, say to have it to uh, um, those men who served and, and who actually lived here rather so not to just served but um, say to list uh, everybody and it's it's rather unusual and um, the buildings themselves are actually now listed uh, buildings with the uh, English uh, heritage and um, there's some um, the the buildings themselves as well as the first World, they have a, a sort of um, a, a kind of interesting connection with kind of rock and roll. And rock music because uh, one of the flats here in uh, the 1970s was the uh, home address of uh, Sid vicious and uh, johnny rotten and allegedly uh, what's happening if you go into the communal entrance you'll find uh, that um, sid vicious allegedly uh, carved his initials into the bricks um, in uh, um, one of the uh, the bricks in the uh, in the main entrance he's had uh, other people um, living here as well so famous people boy george from culture club um, steve took from the band uh, t-rex so it's a really interesting uh, bit of london but it's it's a beautifully tranquil very calm place and it's lovely to see that this uh, this memorial is still uh, in pride of place on the side of the uh, of the the building and i do wonder whenever i see things like this is what the men who lived there at the time of the great war would make of the way this part of london now looks so the final stop in our tour around the War Memorials or some of the War Memorials of London brings us to a very noisy Hyde Park corner. There's a, an awful lot of uh, building going on in the background and I do apologise that I hope you can uh, hear okay. But um, in front of me is one of what I think is probably the most visually uh, impressive memorials anywhere in the world. And it's uh, designed, once again, by Charles Sergeant Jagger. Of course, we met at the very beginning of this podcast. And it's the Royal Artillery Memorial, which commemorates the 49,075 men of the Royal Artillery who lost their lives in World War One. And when you stand by this memorial, the scale of it, I mean, everything about it is just uh, immense. It's about... 13 metres long, it's about 6 metres wide, and I think it's about 9 metres high. And it's dominated on the top of it by a a one-third scale model of a a 9.2-inch howitzer. It's absolutely uh, remarkable. And um, the thing I think as well that that particularly strikes me about the memorial is, is it bears... Four of jagger 's uh, figures that are so sort of representative, I think really of the kind of the work that he did, and one of the uh, figures on the south uh, side of the memorial it represents a, a, an officer who 's uh, holding his uh, great coat, and uh, as we head round to the, the west of the memorial there 's a, a driver uh, wearing a, a cape with his sort of arms outstretched it 's almost like a sort of angel in, in the, 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 the sort of stylization. Um, of it, uh, on on the west side is uh, sorry, on the east side rather is a, is a shell uh, carrier, and then I think possibly most sort of controversially, on the south side is a dead soldier lying covered. By his coat, with his a god, uh, he got his, uh, his helmet on his uh, on his chest, and um, the memorial itself has it engraved on the sides of it. There are reliefs or, or, or on each side. There's two on each side, and of the two, one is uh, larger than the other. And um, on the the west side, you have scenes of uh, men of the, the Royal uh, Horse Artillery and a signaler, and on the uh, on the other side, there's a uh, sort of a heavy heavy artillery, and I think it's uh, probably the the gun crew of uh, maybe a, a howitz. Or, or some kind of a sort of large uh, gun but I, everything about the memorial is is just massive in in scale and the, the story behind it actually had came that's very uh, very interesting. The, the uh, Royal Artillery set up uh, uh, an organisation that was called the Royal Artillery War Commemoration Fund. And this was set up in, I think, 1918, it might be 1919. But um, uh, what they were really tasked with doing was presiding over the uh, commemorations for the regiment in the aftermath of the great war and what was really interesting when you sort of read about their kind of mindset there there was a great deal of sort of i think this is dissatisfaction is probably the right way to describe it with some of the um, memorials that had been uh, developed to commemorate uh, sort of uh, other wars like the boer war and and things like that and um, one of the things that they, they were particularly critical about was that the royal artillery had a, a, a memorial to uh, its service in the Boer War, which was designed by a man called Sir Aston uh, Webb, and the um, the committee were sort of very, very uh, highly uh, critical of this memorial. So, what happened was that when they decided that they were going to create uh, a, a specific. First World War uh, memorial. They had some sort of very kind of fixed ideas uh, about what they wanted the memorial to look like. And there was uh, one of the sort of the main uh, requirements that they had was that the memorial should feature a. Uh, a piece of artillery. It should have a, a gun of some description, which should form a sort of major part of the memorial. And this was very, very sort of controversial because this kind of thing really wasn't sort of done in uh, war memorials up to um, that uh, point. So they put uh, sort of a request out for for people to tender ideas. And the first uh, sort of design submission that came in came from a man called uh, Captain Adrian uh, Jones. Now he was uh, already an architect. He did, designed a um, a war that stood in London right, to the, the Boer War uh, cavalry but the, when his uh, design uh, was submitted the committee really didn't like it and they rejected it so what they did is they um, approached three of the sort of the most pre-eminent uh, architects of the time two of whom were, were working for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission one was uh, Sir Edwin Lutyens so there was Herbert Baker and, and also uh, Sir Aston uh, Webb which is uh, interesting considering sort of how critical They'd been of his, um, his uh, other uh, sculpture. And um, Lutyens actually submitted three uh, different uh, designs, but they were all sort of very uh, aligned, I suppose, to the sort of almost like the classical Lutyens uh, style. And uh, they were all kind of rejected. Um, by the um, uh, committee, and the the committee went back to Lutzen you know, with this insistence that the memorial should um, I- include a, a piece of artillery. And it was when this sort of this was kind of non-negotiable, and it was at that point that uh, Lutyens decided to uh, with draw from the process and a baker was not sort of much more help either because he had very very strong views about um, uh, single uh, regiment uh, memorials, he didn't agree with them, he, he really thought that it was not the way that memorialization, I suppose we would say should be done and he uh, did uh, submit a design which the, the committee rejected and um, uh, Webb uh, decided not to actually get involved uh, at all and he, uh, he was therefore sort of removed Moved uh, from the process so what the committee decided to do they um, they sought out uh, I suppose we would say kind of an artist whose reputation sort of preceded him and as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast when we look at the memorial at Hoylake um, Jagger had sort of really firmly nailed his kind of colours to the uh, to the flagpole, and uh, he was very, very highly regarded. As we said, for his uh, his skill at producing sort of lifelike uh, figures, and one of the things that the the Royal Artillery Commission uh, Committee rather wanted to have was uh, these uh, figures on the um, on the memorial. And they contacted Jagger, who at the time was very, very busy on other projects. He was working on the Brussels memorial at the time, and they asked him if he could submit, in, in their words, a, a realist. Um, design and um, they uh, said that uh, they would like to have a group of uh, bronze uh, soldiers on some form of uh, pedestal and and I think sort of when uh, Jagger got this in I and mean, it was really um, sort of right up his streets and he had some very very clear uh, kind of ideas in his head as to what he wanted the memorial to look like, and and what we have here today at Hyde Park Corner is actually very, uh, very similar to the, the kind of the original design that he uh, put in. I mean, the the, the the big changes are that originally he'd only envisaged putting two uh, figures on there, and in his original design, the, the gun on the top was actually pointing at ninety degrees in the the other uh, direction, and and I think one of the things that's really interesting is that that Jagger obviously had been an infantry soldier. He'd had experience of the First World War firsthand. And and I think one of the things that he really wanted to try and uh, do with this memorial was that he wanted to um, represent or or present a memorial, I think, that focused on on war and he was very keen to try and put across uh, in some way I really I suppose you say like the horror of uh, war and and as an infantry soldier who'd been in the the trenches one of the things that he had seen or or, or experienced was the the absolutely horrifying uh, power of of artillery and how destructive it was. And, uh, and to sort of represent this, he, he felt it was very clear in his mind that it, the the gun that he was going to put on there had to be a howitzer, the largest of the, the artillery um, pieces that were used by the Royal Artillery during the war, because he felt that it was really the only way you could kind of uh, sort of portray this, uh, this ferocity and this violence of uh, artillery fire was to have the biggest gun that you possibly could. And whilst Jagger was sort of very keen to, um, I, I suppose we sort of keep his kind of artistic independence. Uh, he, he did rely very, very heavily on the uh, the uh, men of the the committee for advice about the uh, the artillery piece and kind of what it should look like, um, and uh, and that sort of thing. And he he eventually submitted uh, his uh, final design in February. Of uh, I think it was 1922, and uh, it went to the the committee and was uh, accepted by uh, 50 votes to uh, 15. And so the the problem was that he was already engaged in working on the uh, Brussels. Um, memorial so he didn't actually uh, start work on the the, the memorial itself until late in uh, the autumn of uh, uh, 1922 and and there'd been obviously sort of an eight-month delay between his design being accepted and and, and typical um, perfectionist uh, kind of um, uh, way what he'd done is he'd made some amendments and he'd made some additional um, changes and and what he uh, decided uh, to do was to add in a, a third figure as opposed to the two that were originally there, and he continued to sort of tinker with the design until about 1924, uh, when he made what was probably the most controversial decision of all, which is where he decided to include the figure of a uh, dead. Soldier, and and this was, I mean, you can't underestimate really. I mean, how kind of revolutionary, um, and sort of, um, almost controversial this was because war memorials at that time just simply didn't have dead soldiers that were kind of at, um, eye level. But Jagger was very, uh, very insistent indeed. And in fact, he, he was so insistent that he said that he'd be happy to sort of pay for the figure out of his own, uh, pocket. And, uh, the committee, I think, after much, much, much debate, uh, finally. Uh, agreed and they decided to Include uh, the, the say the, the the figure of the dead soldier and the three living, uh, if, 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 in, in the sense of the word, um, statues were were based on uh, models of uh, of men. who they're all ex uh, servicemen. A man by name William uh, Foster was the the model for the the driver. A man called Edwin uh, Metcalf was the uh, shell carrier, and um, uh, Eugene Bennett, who was a, a v, uh, Victoria Cross winning, won his VC, I think, in nineteen. Sixteen on the Somme was the figure for the officer and and the memorial itself was finally completed um, in October 1925 and it was uh, for Jagger it was an absolutely uh, exhausting process Uh, he uh, lost one of his his chief uh, uh, sort of designers draftsman uh, at the final stages so ended up having to do all the final work um, himself and and by the time the memorial was finally unveiled he was so exhausted that he actually took six months off work to recover Um, but when the memorial was unveiled it it, it met a, a very sort of mixed um Reception, particularly in the press, uh, some areas of the press were were kind of vitriolic, I suppose, almost in their criticism um, of it. It was just too um, too realistic. It was too big. It was uh, it was too uh, sort of ugly. And and I think the two things really that kind of provoked uh, the biggest amount of debate was the inclusion of the gun and and above all probably the the, the representation of the uh, the dead uh, soldier. And as I say, this was something that was completely shocking to to a public that generally just weren't used to seeing uh, dead uh, soldiers on such uh, memorials and when you look through some of the the comments that were made um a man by the name of Lord uh, Curzon a very senior figure in the government uh, was particularly uh, rude about the uh, howitzer and he described it as a, a toad squatting which is about to spit fire from its mouth nothing more hideous could ever be be conceived I mean there's no sort of like doubt as to sort of his um, views on it but um, over time I think uh, people have come to recognize this memorial for, for the absolute um, epic that it is and, and personally I think it is an absolute uh, masterpiece I think it's a masterpiece of the sculptor's art I, I, and I think unquestionably it, it is uh, Jagger's kind of seminal work uh, and just it's a stunning stunning memorial and I think with the the cenotaph in Whitehall I think it's really one of those uh, a memorial that's kind of fundamentally sort of important to the the way we as a nation, remember the Great War, and, and I think the best uh, comment that that I absolutely agree with was made by the art critic Brian uh, Sewell, who um, who summed up the memorial simply by saying, "It is without doubt the finest sculpture of the 20th century." So next time you are up in London, uh, do pop along, have a look and make up your own mind as to whether you think it is the greatest work of sculpture of the 20th century. I, I uh, think it's certainly up there and it is a truly magnificent memorial and I think a very fitting place to end this walk around some of London's well-known and perhaps slightly less well-known war memorials and i'll look forward to having your company in our next podcast i hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of footsteps of the Fallen. with me battlefield researcher historian and writer matt dixon and if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod. Or you can have a look on our Instagram feed, which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, we've also got obviously our website, which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that. And you can find that at dot. And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsofthefallen.com and look at the page marked support us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and make a donation there. Or you can go to patreon.com. Footsteps of the Fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide will be gratefully received. So all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Thank you and goodbye.